Okay, well, welcome back. So it's that time of year again, and today we're going to talk about what should not be in your personal statement. For those who aren't aware or don't really know, the personal statement will account for approximately 50% of any school's decision to grant an interview. So obviously, it's really, really important. We have examples of students with great CASPA applications people with uh, GPAs in the 3.9 range, yet without a single interview, and for no other reason than just the personal statement. Whereas we, we've had students in this cycle who've had GPAs less than 3.0 who not only got interviewed, but were also accepted. So not every time, but many times when you're not getting an interviewer, the results are not what you expected. It's it's going to come down to the personal statement. Every year we try to do, well, we've only done it a couple of years, but we're going to try to keep this going forward. But every year we do this little podcast about what should not be in the personal statement. Everybody uh, often tells us that it it had to be some kind of a story, some kind of riveting tale or attention getter. And this is really kind of old information, I mean, there was a time when we got a few hundred applications at a PA program, but these days the programs are getting, you know, a few thousand. And the simple fact is there are just a small number of people who generally work at a PA program, which means very few people available to read these. But try to put yourself in the position of the people who are reading them. They are generally dealing with two full-time classes. That's a class in their didactic year and another class in their rotations. Those students have to turn in paperwork that has to be read and graded as well. Not to mention the PAs are seeing their own patients because they're more than likely still working in a clinical role. So it's a lot of paperwork that goes with that role as well. Given the sheer number of applicants received in a year, the number of personnel that work at a PA program and their other responsibilities, there isn't a lot of time spent reading these. So these grandiose or fantastical stories are just not helpful. Try to think of this not like a English composition paper, but if you're working in healthcare, it's just going to be almost like a patient No, It's just very dry. It's very straight to the point. This does not mean to leave out personal aspects of your journey to become a PA and things that inspired you. But what I'm saying is I I often read stories like the ER doors came crashing open as the gurney rolled down the dimly lit hallway. Or I watched as a bead of sweat rolled down the forehead as they were doing chest compressions in the middle of a hot summer day in June. Leave that for the English composition courses. This is not the way you want to write your statement. And if you're opening up with this, it's really not going to help because it doesn't say anything about why you want to be a PA, which is what this is all about. So let's talk about some key things that we recommend to leave out. One of the words or phrases we'd recommend that you avoid is team or teamwork. This is just something that we we read a lot of times that, you know, people talk about, I want to be a PA because I want to work in a team or I'm a team player. I work well in a team. I like the team aspect of being a PA. Uh, When I first was working in the Navy, there were times when I wouldn't even see my supervising physician for months. In fact, she really only came to where I worked every three months. She 
My supervising physician at that time, she worked in a different location than I did. Sure, there's teamwork in the aspect of if I have to send a patient out for a consult or I need lab work done or physical therapy. When you're writing that you like team aspect of being a PA, it, it sounds like you think that everything involves you working hand in hand with the PA, I'm sorry, with the MD. I'm actually just going to play this real quick clip for you. We this is one of the PAs that works with us, and she actually talks about the usage of the word team. This is what pretty much everybody wants to know, are what tips do you have for those who are currently going through the application process or going to start applying next cycle? Definitely do some soul searching and figure out why you want to do this. Um, one of the things that I hear a lot is, I want to be a PA because I want to work in a team, and PAs do a lot of teamwork. <laughs> Everybody on the team does teamwork. The MD, the DO, the NP, the PA, the nurse, you're all a team. That doesn't set you apart. That's not why you want to become a PA. So I think you really need to know individually why you yourself want to become a PA, not some answer that you think the school wants to hear as to why you want to become a PA. Okay, so I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) Hopefully that was pretty explanatory. The next word is collaborate or collaboration or collaborating. This is a word that you'll find in a lot of mission statements for a PA program. You know, we train our PAs to work in a collaborative nature or collaboration. So everybody feels that this is a word that they need to include in their statement. So you read a lot about, you know, I like the collaborative nature of being a PA. I want to work in collaboration. I want to collaborate and so on and so forth. Just leave this word out. Another would be solidify. The use of the word, uh, if you're going to write something such as, I saw how the PA was able to manage the patient's care and it solidified my decision to become a PA. Obviously, that's the correct context in which the word is used. The problem with the word is there are many, many other words that have the same meaning, yet everyone uses the word solidified. These days, you have to be very, very cautious about what you're writing. You don't want to seem as if you're copying, if you're plagiarizing. For the sheer fact that there are other words that have the same meaning, I would highly or strongly recommend you do not use the word solidified. Something of note or special for this cycle, I would mention is from the last cycle, we learned that a lot of schools are really looking heavily at personal statements for copying or plagiarism. Simply put, if you're using AI or artificial intelligence to help write your report, I can honestly say in years past, there were words, phrases that we would see and read in statements that would lend us to believe that people are copying. But these days, with the use of AI so uh, prolific, it's something that is looked at even more heavily. So You really want to be careful about reading other people's statements or being influenced by other people's statements and what they have written or what they're saying that you should have or say or write in your statement as well. For any of you who have listened to our other podcasts, you know that we're very big sticklers on talking about the flexibility of being a PA, switching specialties. While this probably sounds like a great idea and why you should become a PA, it is something, honestly, you should never mention in your statement nor at an interview. Often candidates like to write things such as, you know, I want to be a PA because of this flexibility, the lateral mobility, the versatility of the profession. Simple truth is, yes, as PAs, we can switch specialties. However, it is rarely something that is well understood by most applicants. There was a study that was put out last month, talked about this, and found that 
51% of PAs have switched specialties once. Uh, I have. I went from primary care into neurosurgery. That's 51%. That means there are 49% of PAs who have never switched specialties even once. This isn't the reason why I'm telling you not to write it, but it's just something to is for you to think about because not everybody just goes in and then switches specialties at the drop of a hat. For the main reason is it's never as easy as it sounds or it seems like. Again, you can. You can switch specialties. Let's say, for example, you are a PA and you work in pediatrics, but you got an offer to go work in cardiology and you could do that. One day you could be working in pediatrics and the very next day you can switch into cardiology. The problem with that is you're not going to know enough about cardiology to begin seeing your patients on your own right away. And when I say right away, it's actually going to be a long, long time. This is not like switching from CNA to MA or scribe to EMT. There's a significantly much larger learning curve here. If you're writing things like this, well, for the board, they're probably just going to think that you really just don't understand the role of a PA. If you understand the role of a PA, it's that of a provider. You will be managing your patient's care for the most part independently. Yes, you do have a supervising physician that you can go to and ask questions. The The supervising physician honestly is going to expect you to see your own patients on your own. Again, you may have questions here or there, but if you're going to them every single patient, you're, you're really not doing the job of a PA. Of course, in the first year or, of course, more, you're going to need that. You're going to need somebody there to guide you through if you are changing specialties. But after a while, you need to, you'll, you'll need to be able to do this work on your own. The fact that it takes usually a, at least two to three years before you become really, really proficient in a field where you feel very comfortable, you're not uh, consulting with your supervising physician as much, and you're able to manage your patient's care. Again, it's a much, much longer learning period. If you're simply switching specialties, and I've heard this phrase before, like, I like the idea of being a PA because if there's a need for a PA in a different specialty, I can just go and fulfill that role. Okay, well, first of all, I don't know why you would leave a job that you currently have to go fulfill, fulfill a role elsewhere because obviously you're just gonna now create a void somewhere else. And to just up and leave your job all of a sudden because you find that there's a need somewhere else, again, it just doesn't make sense. It's not like being a substitute teacher where you can fill in for a day. Again, if you're going to go into a different field, if you're, say, in gastroenterology and they need somebody in orthopedics, it's it's not going to be the same. I've mentioned a few times that you have to go through a lot of training. If you're going to switch specialties, you're going to have to kind of start over again, learning new drugs, new procedures, new studies, new exams, uh, different problems that come with that type of specialty. And this all takes a long, long time generally. And the person training you is the doctor. Well, I, I can tell you from experience, it's not a lot of fun to train somebody. I mean, it might be for a day or two, but if any of you have worked you know, in your job as a medical assistant or scribe or CNA, any of these roles, and you've had to train junior people. Think back to that and how enjoyable is that? Surely it's fun, it's nice for a period, but after a while you probably just wanna do your job and not have to spend all your time training. For the doctor, they really don't have a choice. They need to train you until you're up to speed where you can manage your patients. But again, this takes a long, long time. If you're somebody that wants to change specialties, and of course this is gonna be reflected on your resume or CV, 
And it shows that you have this propensity for changing specialties. Maybe, you know, for four or five years you did pediatrics. And then after that you went into emergency medicine for maybe another four or five years. And who knows, maybe another specialty. That's the way it's going to come across is that you don't stay in any one specialty very long. And I'll bring it up again. What, you know, if somebody's going to have to spend years of their time, meaning the doctor, to train you, why would they want to do that if they could only expect you to stay five or six years? When you take on a job as a PA, the employer, whomever hires you, they're really expecting you to be there 15, 20, 30 years. It's a huge investment for the provider to train you. And if you've shown this, uh, if you've shown that you like to you know, do something for a few years and move on, then you, at, at some point in time, it's going to be very hard for you to find a job. There are other reasons, such as the length of training, which I've mentioned, but you know, you essentially going back because you're going to have to start over in a sense to learn a new specialty. Uh, oftentimes, there's a drop in pay because you're taking on a role that you don't know. Um, and I, again, there are other reasons, but Highly recommend you do not talk about switching specialties, ladder mobility, flexibility of the profession. Don't write about how a PA spends more time with a patient. Again, this is something we hear or read often. You know, I want to be a PA because I like how they're able to spend more time with their patients. Maybe you have seen this where you work or the PA that you've been working with or shadowing, but just because you saw it does not mean that this is how all PAs uh, work. So again, I'm going to let uh, Kristen just share a story with you real quick. There are always kind of these misconceptions that we find when we're interviewing students. A lot of times they, you know, we read in their statements about how, you know, a PA spends more time with the patient than the doctor does. or the PA, you know, the doctors are overwhelmed with paperwork and not the PA. What would you say about that? I would say that it's very nice on paper, <laughs> um, but I don't think it's very realistic, um, at least in the specialties I've worked in, in emergency medicine and outpatient pediatrics, that's not the case. Um, in the ER, the attendings would take most of the traumas, mm-hmm. um, so they would have a harder caseload per se with that. That doesn't mean that we don't have more patients and right. a couple sprains over here, a couple sutures over here, and a lot more going on um, at the same time in the outpatient world. The doctors get 20 minutes for well visits. I get 20 minutes for well visits. We both get 15 minutes for sick visits. So it would definitely be nice to say that PAs have more time with their patients. Um, Maybe we're better communicators um, and we have more training in that. I don't know. And that's why it comes across as PAs have more time. But when it comes down to the numbers, at least from my experience, it's been kind of equal. Um, And as far as paperwork goes, it's equal, if not more, um, because a lot of times the attending will be like, oh, you have a free minute. Go take care of this on your lunch period. Um, So I would say we're doing equal, if not more, of the paperwork. So I do think that's a misconception. If that's why you're going to become a PA, that's not the reason. Right. Okay, again, so I just would not talk about how PAs spend more time with their patients. Another common phrase I'll see in personal statements is, I enjoy or I like the work-life balance of being a PA. Something I really never understood because PA, being a PA is certainly not a Monday through Friday 95 job. And in my role, I work uh, neuro slash trauma surgery. So, you know, our job is more or less like 24 7, 365. So we have our days that we're on call, but even still, there are things, emergencies that come up with patients that we're managing. We're generally in the hospital, well, every day. We have to see our patients that are in the hospital. So, 
the doctor and I split this up and it just really is too much for one person to do, but it's not five o'clock in the afternoon and I just go home. I've got to, you know, some days I get up really early because it's my day to round on the patients in the hospital. Some days there's a consult waiting to be seen after work. So I have to go see that. Every other weekend, the doctor and I switch off. So it's definitely not when we talk about the work-life balance. I, I work the same hours as the doctor does. And granted, you may not go into neurosurgery or trauma. And maybe you go into a clinical setting that is more of a Monday through Friday job. But there still will be the after-hour phone calls or you know, just getting your work done, the charting, filling out patient forms, uh, appeals to denials of patient care, and more. So in terms of work-life balance, it's the same as the physician. You're not going to get, you know, any, you're not going to be worked any less because you are the PA. Being a lifelong learner, I don't see this probably not quite as much, but still it's sort of funny. You read this phrase, being a lifelong learner, and really anybody is a lifelong learner. Look at an auto mechanic. Look at a con, you know construction. Uh, look at you know music. Look at I don't know graphic arts, uh, computer science, and law, business. I mean, it can go on. It, it's not just healthcare, and it's certainly not being a PA. Uh, and if you were just to narrow it to healthcare, the lab technicians are a lifelong learner. So are the physical therapists and dietitians nurses. So it's not specific to PAs. Everyone in healthcare is a lifelong learner. So just don't use that statement. The personal statement is not an area to highlight things that are already in CASPA. For whatever reason, uh, last few cycles, I've seen a lot of statements probably near to the end where they highlight their leadership or volunteer that they've done. The statement is absolutely not a place to bring any of this up. That is all in your pers- uh, that is all in CASPA, your CASPA application. And if I want to know something about you from what volunteer work you have done, what leadership you've had, any of this, I am going to go look at CASPA, but I you should not have this in your personal statement at all. Applicants commonly write about how they want to work with the underserved, people who are disadvantaged, lack of access to care, or the disenfranchised. Now, I can tell you right away that if it's in your last paragraph, which is generally where it's going to be about, I don't know, 80% of the time, I already know that you don't really mean it or that it's something you've read or been told that you need to put into your statement. But it's not something that you, it isn't a big part of your life And maybe I used the wrong words. Maybe I shouldn't say that you don't care about it, but it's not the reason you're becoming a PA. You're you're more or less writing it because you've been told to or read this somewhere. Again, particularly if I see it in the last paragraph. I mentioned the last paragraph because, again, as I said earlier, that's where it will appear about 80% of the time. If you didn't grow up disadvantaged or underserved or have lack of access to healthcare, then you really should not bring this up as part of your reason or your reason for becoming a PA. There are people who have grown up this way and that was part of their life. And for those people, usually they introduce it in the beginning of their statement, kind of building on why they're doing this in the first place. But if you're just gonna, you know, sum up your statement or, you know, round it out in the end by saying, oh, by the way, you know, I want to work with the disenfranchised, lack of access, people are underserved or just disenfranchised, it's going to come off incredibly disingenuous and cliche. So, Be very, very careful about talking about any of this. Everybody likes to tell me, well, the school I'm applying to really emphasizes this. And 
When I hear that phrase, that statement, I, I often think to myself that you probably have not looked at many programs because it is actually an emphasis of essentially every PA program out there. Uh, it is not unique to one and one does not emphasize it more than another. Even though they may have it on their website and say, for instance, a school did not, all the schools, it is something that they do emphasize. Try to remember as a PA in terms of your impact on this. I mean, if there are people who are underserved and lack access to care, becoming a PA is not necessarily going to change this because you will have to work with a supervising physician. In effect, if you are working with a supervising physician, there must be access to care. If you're writing this too much about how, again, you want to provide access to care for the people who lack access or they're disadvantaged uh, or underserved, what your statement's really going to come off sounding like is you want to get into public health. And sometimes at an interview, we might even ask a student, you know, why didn't you choose a path either as a social worker or pursue public health? Because think of it for, for those of the those of you who have worked in a clinical setting, not in a hospital setting, for those of you who've worked in a clinical setting in an office, be honest with yourselves and think, how much impact does the PA have on the patients that are seen in that office? Because in the offices where I have worked, it was the medical assistants or the office manager. They were the ones who determined you know, what insurances we took the medical assistants were the ones who verified the insurance, their eligibilities, what copay, if any, they had. All this was done well before I ever saw the patient. Nobody ever comes to me and says, you know, what patients do you want to see? Or, you know, how many disadvantaged, underserved, or lack of access do you want to want us to schedule today? Not trying to be flippant about this, but if you're going to talk about things that Hopefully, any of you who've worked in a clinic already know that this is not the response of the PA. You should not write about these things. And as I keep saying, and I'll just keep coming back to, I would probably ask you at an interview, why didn't you go into public health or why not become a social worker? One of my daughters is a social worker, and she does get people medical and dental appointments for people who don't have insurance or you know, really have either insurance that's not going to cover what they need, but she's an expert at finding these places that provide this type of care, provide service. Uh, sometimes they do trade or whatever. I don't even know how she does it sometimes. Because again, that's not my job. But then my daughter doesn't even know common medical things or, you know, simple medical things, or at least what I consider very simple. So, because she's not a clinician where she's treating somebody, managing their care, prescribing the treatment plan. So, I would really recommend that you very, very cautiously use these phrases, if at all. So you may, like I said, you may have been told, you might have read somewhere that you have to say how you want to work with the disadvantaged, underserved, lack of access, et cetera. Uh, I strongly just disagree with this. I used to work in San Diego, California. And San Diego is the eighth largest city in the United States. Even though it's the eighth largest city in the United States, I had plenty of people that came to our clinic that were underserved. And we didn't advertise for them. And again, I lived in San Diego, so it wasn't exactly a city that was perceived as an underserved location. You know, we're near the border, so we saw a lot of people who from Mexico who had no insurance and most didn't even speak English. We had a large homeless veteran population. We had a large Native American population. There were a lot of refugee populations such as Syrian, Iraqi, 
and Somali. And these are just some, just a few of the underserved populations that were in San Diego that we, in the clinic that I worked at, we were routinely treated. But we didn't put out a sign. We didn't go place our clinic where we thought they were going to do the best. They just came to us anyway. The point I'm trying to make here is if you're gonna talk about working with the underserved, I promise you they will come to you regardless. Uh, there are, of course, other, you know, some people who are more underserved than others because there's no care available within, you know, close driving range. But even in a big metropolitan city, you're going to treat underserved. People who have lack of access to care, unless, you know, you convince a doctor to move with you to set up a practice in an area where there's lack of access to care, you need to work with a doctor that is already existing out there or simply there's nothing more that you could do as a PA. I don't know, I keep going on about this, but I just, again, be very careful about talking about lack of access to care, underserved, uh, disadvantage. The statement, for those who don't know, it is 5,000 characters, and that does include spaces. Now, again, having done this for a long time, I see a lot of statements that are, you know, in the 4,999 range. I'm gonna tell you right now that 4,000 to 5,000 characters that's what you're aiming for. If you're trying to get to the highest number possible, the only one you're gonna satisfy is yourself. There is no character count on the, the personal statement or on CASPA. So when you submit CASPA, there will be no number or word count. So we have absolutely no idea. It's just the, the space only is limited to 5,000 characters. But whatever you put in there, we don't know how many it is, and we are not gonna do a word or character count. There's no time for it, and it wouldn't make any difference anyway. So say, for instance, you write a draft and you get to 4,318, but you don't know what else to say. Stop, okay, you're done. Don't keep trying to write more because it'll come off that way. It'll be too wordy. I see this all the time where people are just repeating something they've said before. Uh, they become very redundant with certain words adding in superfluous information just to increase a character count, which will absolutely not help you. Okay, so I hopefully I've made the personal statement really clear. Okay, I'm just kidding, I probably didn't, but I'm not talking about how to write it, I'm actually just talking about things that you should avoid uh, for the most part because these everything that I've discussed is what you will see in easily 80% of all personal statements. That's why we do this every year, and every year, it's essentially the same thing. I keep reading the same uh, cliche, repetitive phrases that either for no other reason than the fact that everybody is using it, like solidify should be taken out, or things that are you know show that you don't really appreciate or understand the role, such as I want to be a PA to switch specialties. Um, if you're not sure what your story should be about, certainly you can sign up for our services. We do have personal editing plans, starting with a basic, which is a single edit, but you would meet directly with a PA. It's a virtual Zoom interview where we'll talk to you, help you formulate what we feel would be a good story that reflects you and doesn't sound like everybody else, uh, to the ultimate editing plan, which includes unlimited editing of your statement as well as help with your resume your supplemental essays, and the COVID statement. But if you have questions about these, you can always go to our website, sign up for the free consultation, and we can answer your questions about the personal statement or any of the other services that we offer. So again, I hope this was helpful. We, we do this each year, or we've been doing it since we started the podcast, and so we'll do it again next year, but um, hope this was soon enough. We tried to do it earlier this year that 
you know the cycle is opening if you're not aware cycle opens on april 25th and so now is the time to get that started okay thanks for listening and uh, contact us if you have any questions